0: Welcome to this week's episode of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the TLS. My name is Thea Linarduzzi and while my usual co-host Stig Abel is exercising his right to some of his 5.6 weeks of statutory annual leave provided for by the British government, I'm joined by my dear friend and colleague Lucy Dallas. Hello Lucy.
2: Hello, well done for pointing out exactly how much holiday you and everybody else are entitled to. Very important to Mm -hmm.
0: to know one's rights. Um, What news from the allotment Lucy?
2: Well, good question. How long have you got?
0: <laughs> it's a question everyone's been waiting for.
2: It's a question. No, I don't imagine anyone is, but I'll tell you anyway. Well, it's harvest season, hooray! Or it's the beginning of harvest season. So we got, we got black currants, red currants, gooseberries, chard. We will have peaches. Had the cherries. Cherries are done. Um, something else I ate the other day: green beans. Not many. This <laughs> is a list
0: of things that Lucy Dallas has eaten recently. This is a this is a whole other segment.
2: But the thing about it is, it's not terribly bountiful. It's not like I'm coming home with you know baskets and baskets. Yeah, exactly, (laughs) exactly. It's about five of each thing. But I'm very happy to have you know those things that I can hold in one hand to
0: eat creatively. Yeah. Um, Before I tell you all about what we have coming up on this week's show, I must urge you to subscribe to the TLS if you don't already. Subscriptions keep Lucy and me in our jobs, and God knows we won't make the best subsistence farmers. So if you live in the US or... No? I'm just saying that. Well, I might. (laughs) Speak for yourself. So if you live in the USA or Canada, go to podcast.the-tls.com. If you live anywhere else, including the UK, then go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod 19 and you'll get five issues for just five pounds or five dollars coming up we'll be focusing on visual arts and music this week we have a special focus on the latter when irving sandler wrote his seminal history of abstract expressionism he neglected to mention five quite important artists who happened to be women jenny quilter joins us to put them back in the frame Laura Tunbridge will tell us about the interconnected, complicated and often contradictory myths and realities that link Chopin, Schumann and Brahms. And Lucy Dallas, who is after all our music editor, will take us from these romantics through the blues and onto the poetic pop of the Pet Shop Boys.
2: the names Chopin, Schumann and Brahms do you think of great geniuses and tempestuous lives, tragic virtuosi not bound by the laws that govern the rest of us? This is what the myths and maybe some of the music would have us believe and they are enticing stories and not untrue but the romantic idea of romantic composers is of course a partial one and it doesn't always help us to understand the people and the circumstances that help to create their work which is the reason we're interested in the first place This week, Professor Laura Tunbridge, who specialises in German Romanticism, has written about this for us, reviewing major new biographies of Chopin and Schumann, and a set of essays on Brahms in context. Laura, many thanks for joining us. You start your piece by um, telling the flip side, as it were, of quite a well-known story about Chopin and Schumann. When they were both very young, Schumann reviewed a Mozart variation by Chopin. Um, and with sort of fantastical praise and heralded the arrival of a genius. But you tell us that Chopin was amused by this because he thought that Schumann's interpretation was basically a bit bogus. Um, (laughs) Is your point that they were really very different characters and not a sort of romantic band
3: of brothers? Precisely, that... um The way that they thought about music and what music could do and what music might mean to people was very different. So Chopin preferred to think of music in quite abstract terms, whereas Schumann tended to add stories and images to his music, at least at that stage in his career. So in terms of their artistic outlooks, actually, they were fairly different, even if they admired each other. I think at this point it was mostly one way that Schumann admired Chopin. I'm not sure that Chopin was so terribly interested in Schumann.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and they're, they're, were they different in their personal lives? There's a couple of good stories about the way Chopin travelled and um, generally gathered about places.
3: Yeah, I mean, he had a much more cosmopolitan career in lots of ways, travelling from Poland to France and then travelling around Europe and to the UK. Um, Schumann was much more bound to Germany was a family man as opposed to having a string of um lovers as Chopin tended to do um so they were quite different in that sense they had some similarities they were quite sociable a bit picky about their friends but had quite strong friendships quite enjoyed taking the mickey out of people Chopin in particular was renowned for being a good mimic and impersonating people, which isn't something that you really think of and kind of goes against the idea that he was interested in abstract music in some way.
0: How important was was Polishness to Chopin?
3: It was very important to him, but at a distance, because he spent actually the majority of his career in Paris and elsewhere. So whilst he maintained strong links through friends and family with Poland, he never returned there to live. So you have him kind of imagining a Polish identity for himself, which makes it no less important, but in some ways slightly fictional, and and it influenced his music to a certain extent, didn't it? But, um... Certainly, yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of what kinds of dance forms he chooses, mazurkas, polonaises, that kind of thing, um, he's choosing forms which invoke. Polish identity. So, from that point of view, yes, it feeds into his music very much. Mm-hmm.
2: And both of them, Schumann and Chopin, they tried to control their legacies, didn't they? You, you, you talk about it. Do you think it worked? And, and uh, how did the 19th century biographers
3: treat them? 19th century biographers, a bit like 21st century biographers, are more interested in the stories around them and finding out the what they think is the real story beneath everything. So Chopin tried to destroy a lot of his letters and compositions. Um, Thankfully, I suppose, people didn't obey his orders. Schumann was different because he tried to catalogue everything and collect. He was always a collector. And he was almost trying to create his own archive before his death. And interestingly, that didn't really prevent people from digging around and finding out the scandalous side of his life any less than they did with Chopin. So there's, as you mentioned, that sense of wanting to find the kind of romantic myth around these composers and listening to people who had known him, known them earlier in their lives and had stories about them or had rumors about how they behaved and in some ways taking more notice of them than actually what documentation existed. So there was an attempt to control an interest in telling their lives, but these weren't necessarily pointers that were heeded by the people who came to write the first biographies
2: those biographies contributed to that to that myth making did they especially around the the Schumann householders particularly because there's a very very dramatic storyline that's got art and creativity on illness and forbidden love, but there's also quite a domestic one that you mentioned which involves looking after lots and lots of children and having to pay the bills and having to run a kind of rather large house in quite a practical way isn't there
3: there it certainly is and You have all the professional side of the Schumann family. So both of them are active musicians. They do have eight children and need to make money to support themselves and work really hard. But that's not the kind of thing that biographers tend to be interested in. It's the typical thing of telling artists lives. And you don't actually want to know about the days that they're spending at their desk, just creating things. You tend to want to know about what they do in their spare time. But that's not necessarily a reflection of the artistic life, at least in the fullest sense. So it was interesting to try and put a little bit more kind of practical history into play and think about the stories that get told around them, but how much that actually fed into how they live their lives on a day-to-day level. It doesn't maybe make for such a sort of scandalous story, but it sort of adds more historical grit to what we're thinking about and how we understand their music.
0: Well, in fact, trying to work out how Chopin, for example, subsisted... Because you know he he taught and he was sustained by Jane Sterling. I'd never heard of Jane Sterling, uh, and I'm very intrigued by her and her story. Could you tell us a little bit about what she did for him?
3: She was Scottish. She was one of his piano pupils. and what she really provided was financial support in large part. She also introduced him to a lot of people. She took him up to Scotland on tour as an effort to partly get him away from things that were troubling him, but also for financial and fame reasons.
0: Did did he request three seats on the train? uh,
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, no, I think he required quite a lot of looking after and he wasn't in any way as grateful to Jane Sterling and the other women who tended to look after him um, as he probably should have been. So she had this passion for him that wasn't reciprocated and she put that instead into you know, paying his rent and organizing tours and looking after his legacy and his family as well. So you have these women who in some ways are facilitating the artist's life and just get forgotten quite often or dismissed because you know they weren't serious love interests so they didn't really have a bearing on his artistic life and so we don't need to worry about them too much. And it's a great shame because in some ways they're the people who actually allowed the composer to do what he did
0: well indeed and you you tell a lovely story about her um jane sterling kind of safeguarding his his legacy and and looking after him and his family um where after his death she purchased some of chopin's most valuable belongings including a sèvres porcelain service gifts from uh, baron de rothschild and and his uh, his play El piano uh, and and had them shipped to his mother and sister back in warsaw the lengths she went to it's just tragic i suppose <laughs>
3: It is tragic. And then she also commissions a very famous painting of Chopin on his deathbed, and she's slightly disappointed that she's not among the figures who are around him. I bet. And you think, well, surely she should have been. I mean, she wouldn't maybe be recognised by everybody looking at the picture, but on the other hand, she's a person who's actually made it happen.
2: But again, that doesn't fit, does it, into the story no. of, the great, of the romantic genius just kind of – you don't hear about the romantic genius needing three seats on the train. You...
0: I think we need to explain that. <laughs> yes, after. we do. Sorry. Be, we were calling
2: him three-seats Chopin in the office after you said yes, this. Yes, right, OK. You, do, you, do you want to tell, tell, tell how many – how he travelled?
3: Well, his publisher arranged that he could have three seats on the train, so he had one for himself, one to put his feet on, and one for his manservant. <laughs> but that's, that's the way I, mean, I travel. That's how we'd all well, like to travel. I would I too. <laughs> um, I mean, in his defence, he was unwell. At the same time, I was yeah, slightly floored by this idea that publishers would do that for their musicians. I don't think it's something they would tend to do for most people today.
2: No, I don't think so, no. Um, just to go back to um, a point of one of the, one of the differences um, between them, I wondered if you could give us a layman's guide to what you alluded to earlier, which is the difference between the idea of abstract or absolute music, which people tend to think of Chopin and Brahms in that sense, and programmatic music, which is, which is more
3: associated with Schumann. Yeah, so you have abstract music, which is the play of forms is purely instrumental is about the patterns of repetition and development that you can hear as the piece goes on. Programmatic music is associated with extra musical meaning. So it's music that has a sense that it's bearing a story, which might come from texts which are provided by the composer in a title or in a poem or a piece of... um, an essay that is attached to the music. And so in order to understand it fully and to understand how it's structured, you need to have some sense of that extra musical element. Someone like Schumann writes music, which are character pieces, which are portraits of people, uh, some of which are fictional, some of which are from his real life. And he also has a strong sense that music can represent things which might be emotional, but also can be pictorial as well. So landscapes or dances can be considered programmatic in that way.
2: Um, And in fact, you make the point that Brahms, who is often thought of as being terribly serious and abstract, was actually quite pragmatic about rearranging things to be played at home and writing popular, quite folky pieces for amateur choirs. Uh, And in fact, we're going to hear a little bit of one of them, which is the Liebeslieder Walzer, which is uh, Opus 52.
0: How how did the lives of Schumann and Brahms come together then?
3: The, the story goes that Brahms turned up on the Schumann's doorstep in Dusseldorf in September 1853. He was a 21-year-old young man from Hamburg and he played Schumann some of his music and Schumann ran out of the room to get Clara and said, this is young man is a genius. And he then writes an essay he comes out of retirement as a music critic to write his last piece as a critic heralding Brahms as breaking new paths as being the saviour of German music so that's the conventional story and so there's this epiphany of Schumann's that there is somebody to come and take over the mantle and will save the progress of German music from contemporaries like Wagner and Liszt.
0: Might this be a bit of a myth? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So there are lots of
3: Ways in which, I mean, yes, Brahms did show up and the Schumanns were smitten by him, and it was a really fruitful relationship between them. There are lots of things that could have gone wrong. I mean, Brahms had turned up the previous day and the Schumanns went in, (laughs) only the children were at home. So that's a slightly different way of imagining this dramatic arrival on their doorstep. Schumann had met Brahms three years earlier and at that point hadn't really shown any particular interest in his music But this time around, because he was introduced via people like Josef Joachim, so other musicians who the Schumann respected, he was taken in more warmly. And then also it's a tricky thing because you have Robert Schumann writing this essay, acclaiming you as the savior of German music, but you're 21 years old and not everybody is as convinced. So you have composers who just want to bide their time and see what you can do. And so, although it was really helpful for Brahms to have that earlier claim, it was also quite pressurising in terms of people's expectations of what he'd actually achieved at that stage.
2: And then they went on to have a kind of long and complicated history together, didn't they, both the the, the households? Yeah. And Brahms became, as you say, entwined with the household long
3: term. Yes, he did, because at first Schumann was very excited by Brahms' presence and starts composing a little more than he had been. And then within a year, he was suffering more and more uh, from mental illness and attempts suicide and at that point schumann in 1854 asks to be taken into an asylum which leaves clara with all their children and brahms as their newly arrived friend helping out and that relationship continues through basically for the rest of brahms and clara's life they live into the 1890s so the mythical side of this or at least the romanticized side of this is all about the romance between clara and brahms The practical side of it is them running the household and Brahms helping deal with Schumann in the asylum and also managing his legacy because this is still the mid-19th century there is a huge stigma around mental illness they want to protect his reputation as best they can and it falls to Clara and Brahms primarily to make sure that his music is thought of in the best possible light.
0: Mm. As as presumably there would have been stigma attached to um, a married woman living with another man—I would have thought.
3: Yes, I mean when I say in the household, it wasn't no, quite I mean, so.
0: Spending that take, much time yeah. with him.
3: Yeah, which is one reason why the rumours start circulating.
0: Yeah. Mm. But they but, never did get it together. <laughs> so the, the <laughs> to cut long no. story short, they never did
3: get it together. <laughs> well, yes,
2: very so sad. We, have, we have no evidence it that they sad. did. It's a, it's a, um, a,
3: yeah, <laughs> so, but I mean they were obviously really. Deeply fond of each other, and there are letters in which he declares his love. But I mean, you know, we know there are different types of love and different ways in which you might express it. And it was an entirely complicated situation to be in. Mm. So, you know, we don't know.
2: It no, it. we don't. But we can we can um, romanticise about it. Um, Laura, <laughs> I've got a final horrible question for you. I'm afraid it's a kind of desert island discs type thing. Um, <laughs> If you could only have one piece of music from these composers, I'm guessing you'll take Schumann, but I might be wrong. What would you uh, What would you take to wherever it is you'd be going?
3: Oh, that really is a horrible question. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'd really quite like to duck it. Um, <laughs> if I had to, there's a song by Schumann, which is uh, a sentence abschied from Opus 79. It's late 1840s, and it's just a really beautiful, simple lead that in some ways shows how he's in between Chopin and Brahms, but very much his own man. I'm going to go for that. That's Beautiful.
2: Why. Thank you. We're all going to go away and listen to that. Thank you very much for talking to us. Okay. You're welcome.
0: Now, Lucy, we're going to move seamlessly from 19th century European romanticism to uh, the 20th century Mississippi Delta blues. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> how are we going to do that?
2: Well, I think we're just <laughs> going to have to jump in there. Um, yeah, we've got an excellent piece because it's the music issue this week. We've got a, a a wonderful piece by Russell Davis talking about um Robert Johnson who is very well known as a, as a, as a kind of people know the name but well, not
0: Everybody thinks they know about Robert Johnson.
2: Yes, exactly. So the popular myth, we're on myths again, um is that he there was a sort of guy who traveled around and played the guitar a bit and suddenly got much much better. Um, why did he get so much better? Because he went to the crossroads and he met the devil and he sold a soul and the devil made him brilliant at of the guitar and just sound wonderful. And then he died early as a result of that.
0: He died at the age of twenty-seven, being becoming a part of that. That you know the twenty-seven club, which is another kind of myth-making myth, exactly. thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, the story's rather different. Or I mean, it's still pretty dramatic. It is,
2: as far as we know. He didn't meet the devil, but um, there's a um, Russell Davis talks about there's a new um, biography of him in which they've been incredibly thorough and looked through his life. And he was a kind of um, itinerant um, musician. And at some point he fell under the uh, tutelage of, in fact, a human, not the devil, uh, a human called Ike Zimmerman, who was a very, very good guitarist. He seems to have spent some time with him and as a result got much, much better.
0: And he had a fantastic guitar, did Zimmerman. It was uh, a Gibson, wasn't it?
2: He did, yes. He had a good guitar and was a very good player and Robert Johnson got much, much better. Um, but it's but the, the bit about the devil, um, they think it uh, might have come in because um, he had a, a young wife and child um, and she died in childbirth while Robert Johnson was off, you know, wandering about, kind of um, getting boozed up and, and playing music. Um, and he was devastated by this. And the baby um, died naturally. as well. Yes, yeah so he would go in um to bars and get completely drunk and sort of and and blaspheme and yeah. curse god the for devil's this. music no he just sort of cursed god you know for wasn't everything awful which was incredibly shocking yeah. thing to do uh and um the biographers think that maybe this is why they thought he had the devil in him because right. how could you, how could you talk that way about, about yeah. God? Um, but
0: presumably that's what I mean. That must have fed into the, the kind of the myth that was being spun even then about oh, I the, see. Blues that it was being the devil's, devil's music. music. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah, it might have done. Yeah, because also it was the, it was a kind of other, there was another line. There's, there's always gospel and church music happening, but yeah, blues music is something else. And it was often, it was, it was quite racy and rude and salacious and violent and all that, all that fun stuff.
0: <laughs> there's, a, uh, there's another, in- there's an interesting link, you mentioned gospel there, but there's an interesting link uh, between African-American vaudeville and the blues, which I hadn't, I certainly had never really thought about. It's, it seems to be something of a new theory that's put put forward in one of the books that Russell Davies
2: yes, considers. Yes, yes, exactly. And it's, and it's, it, this is not a well-known thing that, that, that the book, um, which is called The Original Blues, is positing that some of the roots of the blues are, are actually from African-American vaudeville, which was kind of touring shows and, um, And it's very difficult to piece together because the people didn't record and they often had, they were quite poor, they had eventful lives, a lot of them died young as well. But you can just hear echoes of it in the stuff that comes along later, so it's quite difficult to pin down.
0: So you can only imagine that they were sort of sitting up on on stools and and lamenting, basically, kind of singing the blues in a very...
2: It was the blues, but it wasn't all. Some of it was kind of funny and a bit bawdy, you know, that side of it as well. It wasn't just sad, if you like it was it was kind of all sorts of things.
0: I like the sound of um Butler string beans may, who was um as Davies describes him a long legged capering presence possessed of a rhythmic loggeria which certainly deserves to count among the origins of rap.
2: yes, he sounds brilliant and he's he was apparently incredibly influential, but we have no recordings of anything that he'd done. you All we've got is the echoes of people saying this is what string beans used to do, and even that is is um is fairly hazy, the echoes, but it is a it's a really fascinating story and much less well known than the kind of slightly corny old went to the crossroads and 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 sold his soul yeah. story. I so mean, on. which
0: we've all done. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's move. Uh, let's move from proto-rap then to synth-pop. Seamless, um, seamless, yep. of course, as always. Um, what's our managing editor Robert Potts writing about this week?
2: He Is writing about um, the lyrics of um, pop musicians, a couple in particular, Pet Shop Boys and Kate Bush, because they have both uh, they both published them. I think late last year, they published them as poetry or as you know books published the lyrics, um, which always invites the comparison between lyrics and poetry. Um, And we have to say that Robert's also on holiday; otherwise, we'd have made him come here and do his Kate Kate Bush impression. Sing for
0: himself. But he, he, starts, he starts with a discussion, as you said, of, um, of the Pet Shop Boys, a particular track called uh, Yesterday When I Was Mad. So maybe we should hear a little bit of that. Um, I mean, there's a lot going on there. But what's going on there? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, po- first of all, also Neil Tennant is very careful in this book. He doesn't say this is poetry. Mm. He's, I mean, he's cl- he's very, very smart. Of course, he is. So he says this. The book is called One Hundred Lyrics and a Poem. Mm. So there is so one thing in there that, 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 that he says yeah. is a poem, and then he says, "Look, the rest of it is lyrics." But those lyrics, they're very accomplished, and also the irony um, of him of them saying. Um, expression of such irony mm. and they found that a problem because they, they were very clever and he often as Robert says he uses these personas to tell stories and then later on it, it seems to be that people don't take them very seriously because they don't seem to be singing from the heart because because they're assuming these personas which is a very literary thing to do mm. of course and in fact they did it we were talking about the romantics that's exactly what the romantics did as well you you tell a story from a particular situation um, and he said later on in an interview. It's obviously a failure of ours that we've given people the impression that what we do is some kind of elaborate joke because they're very funny and playful. Um, but he also, there's a, a song of theirs called Your Funny Uncle, which is about the funeral of a young friend. When you see it on the page, it does look like poetry, actually, mm. and it conveys, very, it's a, conveys the sense of, of a life cut short, you know, very movingly. Um, and it all, you know, it all kind of stands up. Terribly well,
0: and certainly the literary sensibilities. Um, and Robert runs through a number of them, but you know, from David Lodge, he quotes lover's bourgeois construct." That's from David Lodge's Nice Work. Then there's uh, Paris in the Third Right by David Price Jones. There's Stefan Zweig. There's uh, Anna Mac- Mac- Akhmatova. Um, so it's definitely you, you can see why someone would would wish to collect it in, in in a kind of a literary publication as well. But Neil Tennant, well, and the Pet Shop Boys. Are, Together, uh, Chris Lowe as well. So they're kind of synonymous with gay culture in the nineteen eighties, aren't they? I suppose they are, but they weren't. They sort of didn't say that. Well, he uh, Neil Tennant didn't. I mean, didn't come out until nineteen ninety four in in an interview. No, and but they, they they became very much associated with that kind of outsider. Sound. Yes, yes, and I think
2: that was partly because of the 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 personae. and also as I say, that allows you to say a lot of things because some of it's very political as well. The song called King's Cross. Um, which is very political.
0: Is but that the all, one about Thatcher?
2: Yes. Yeah. Um, but it's all quite elegantly done. You know, it's not a, it's not a kind of howl of rage. It's all very articulate yeah. and elegantly turned. But it's powerful stuff, yeah. and it also works on the page. Which you know, let's be honest, m- most lyrics really don't because yeah. they are very much to be sung and within within the music that the that they're contained in.
0: From one, I would say, gate. Icon uh, to another. There's Kate Bush. She, I mean, she was also, she's also associated with that scene. I suppose Rufus Wainwright once described her as the older sister that every gay man wants, uh, and is one of the artists who makes it appear better to be on the outside uh, than on the inside. Uh, what what do we get in her book? Because because that's the other one that Robert's talking about, How to Be Invisible.
2: Well, as Robert says, she's very different. It's very, um, it's still very literary because she's she references books all
0: the time from. Natch Wuthering Heights. She, she actually hadn't read Wuthering Heights, though. She'd just seen the end of the TV production. But
2: I saw another interview in which she says she saw the TV and then went and to And then she, it. I can't remember whether she wrote the song and then she read it, ah. or then she read it and then she wrote the song. I think we can say that she has now. She's probably now read. She Wuthering knows what happens. Yeah, yeah. It ends badly. Um, <laughs> but she also talks about J. M. Barry and Hans Christian Andersen and a lot of Joyce. And that's a pretty tricky thing to do, to get stuff about James Joyce in what was known then as the top 20. Um, I'm not sure she actually got Joyce in the top 20, but, you know, she did that. Mm. But it's less elusive than The Pet Shop Boys. It's much more kind of evocative and atmospheric and it kind of suggests things. And Robert says, uh, what does he say? She's more engaged with archetypes and myths. Mm. And I think... That kind of that makes sense, doesn't it? That it it's and and she dredges up all these weird things that you, you don't know quite where they're from. Well, oh, she
0: sings about incest and that's from a folk
2: song, actually. That one, right? She didn't make that one up. She she's sort of drawing on a folk song. It turns out, but yeah, that I mean, that's you know, just just to take an example, yeah. And um,
0: there's a there's there's a a joyous silliness. Does that come across? Do you think?
2: Oh, I think it does. Yeah. There's one called "Sat in Your Lap." which is about, um, I think it's about kind of knowledge and how you know what you know. And at one point she says, I want to be a lawyer, I want to be a scholar, but I really can't be bothered. <laughs> <laughs> and she just, and there's a really silly video with it. And it, it looks kind of amazing, but also quite good fun. She's not always terribly serious.
0: I think Robert suggests that the, the, the book itself sort of misses out on some of that fun uh, mm-hmm. by not including, I think he says, it's some of the earlier songs, uh, including Blow Away.
2: Yes, yeah, he mentions Babushka, which is pretty bonkers uh, if you know it. I'm not going to sing it, but yeah, there's one <laughs> called "Blow Away," which I didn't know, um, and it has it has this idea. She it, they sort of um, chant in in the chorus about um, Minnie and Mooney and Vicious, and I think she says Holly and Denny, which and is the, the idea of um, who were all reasonably recently, apart from Buddy Holly, dead musicians.
0: Let's have a listen to that then. And so that's the line. Bolan and Mooney are are heading the show tonight. Um, so Yes. It's lovely really Mark Bolan there, another he, member of the 27 Club, I think.
2: Exactly. So Mark Bolan and Mooney is Keith Moon, ah. I think. Uh, and then later in the chorus, it's Minnie, Minnie Ripperton, who did the wonderful singer who did "Lovin' You. Mm. Um, so then Keith Moon, Sid Vicious, slightly less of an accomplished <laughs> singer, but had also... He you did know, it his way. <laughs> very good. <laughs> um, Buddy Holly, who had obviously died a long time before... Um, and, and wonderful but who was Sandy also young, Denny. yeah, and the wonderful Sandy Denny, and so she's got this, and that song "Blow Away" is kind of about. Uh, um, Robert says it's uh, exploring the porous boundary between the dead and the living.
0: Well, it's like a séance. The, 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 the scene a, that she describes is almost a séance.
2: Yes, it? it's like they're all having dinner. <laughs> it's just it's just normal. It's what you do if you're Kate Bush. I mean, she's <laughs> she's amazing.
0: Um, what do you make then, finally, of this? Um, I don't know. Is it recent? This thing of publishing. Uh, lyrics in books in this way, you know, whether it's as poems or well, I mean, they're not publishing them as poems, but they're, you know, it's Faber, for example. Is it sort of necessary now that we can't really rely on people buying, you know, records and CDs where they would have got the sleeves with the lyrics and and all of that sort of thing?
2: I don't know whether it's. I mean, it's pretty. It asks quite a lot of it to put mm-hmm. it in a book. They used to only do it for the canon, as it were. So they did it for Lennon and McCartney. They did it for Bob Dylan, basically. But recently they have been doing it a bit more. I don't know. I mean, you can find lyrics online, but that's not as nice as having it in a lovely book. I, I mean, nothing is as nice. I was struck by this when I was listening to Sat In Your Lap, the one I mentioned. Nothing, there is no substitute for listening to it with the music because it makes, because it's all embedded. And a lot of the effects are, you know, you can't get them without the music anyway.
0: And I suppose that's what we'd like everyone to do then, go and listen to the music.
2: Yep, go ahead, get your headphones out and have a good time.
0: Apparently, at some point in the 1950s, Clement Greenberg, the king maker of abstract expressionism specifically and visual art more generally, delivered a lecture to a room full of people in which he asserted that a woman could never become a great artist no matter that at least three of the women present, Lee Krasner, Grace Hartigan, and Helen Frankenthaler, were themselves aspiring in their own ways to artistic greatness, nor that one of them, Frankenthaler, had been in a relationship with Greenberg for a couple of years by then and had not long had her first successful solo show. They were almost certainly not surprised by the statement, however, each being intimately familiar with the particular limits imposed on women artists. Writing in this week's paper, the art critic Charles Darwin points out that Irving Sanders' defining history of abstract expressionism published in 1970 includes not a single woman, not Lee Krasner or Joan Mitchell or Helen Frankenthaler or Grace Hartigan or Elaine de Kooning. Abstract expressionism was, he says, a thing of whiskey and chest hair. A recent book by Mary Gabriel, Ninth Street Women, Five Painters and the Movement that Changed Modern Art, focuses on these historically underappreciated artists' work and inevitably on the circumstances of its creation, prompting all sorts of questions. Among them, must we judge these artists' work differently for knowing who they were in relationships with? And what would they have thought about being grouped together and called great? Jenny Quilter, who has reviewed Ninth Street Women for the TLS, joins us on the line from New York now. Hello, Jenny. Hi, Theo. Hi. Um... Five biographies is a lot to take on, and the result is some 900 pages of quite granular work about this show and that show. Uh, what's it like to read, and does anyone emerge as a, a kind of dominant figure among, among these five women?
4: I think the book is going to read very differently depending on whose work you're familiar with. I went into it having read about Grace Hardigan, Joan Mitchell, and Elaine de Kooning a bit more, and I was less familiar with Frankenthaler and Krasner and uh, so for me, Krasner's life was one of the most eye-opening pieces to read about. I knew Krasner a little bit from, of course, her relationship with Pollock, but I'm ashamed to say I knew very little about her life. And it really was quite an extraordinary life. Um, she said in an interview that I came out of nowhere, and she really did. She grew up in Brooklyn. Um, uh, the only painting in the house was a a paint a reproduction of Queen Isabella. She went to Cooper Union and then to the National Academy of Design. She waitressed in the village, she modelled nude for other artists, she painted china and hats, she joined the artists' union, along with Arshal Gorky and Harold Rosenberg. And within that crowd, she became incredibly significant. That's presumably how she met Jackson Pollock. Yes, so she met him because she'd been picked for an exhibition by John Graham, um, who was an amazing character that Gabrielle spends a, a bit of time on, which I'm really glad about because not enough is given to him. So Graham picked her for a exhibition. He also picked Pollock. And Krasner was curious because she knew everyone else who was listed in the exhibition but not Pollock. So she sought him out and went to his studio. And she apparently opened the door, saw his work, and it sort of hit her that he was painting ahead of his time and that she knew he was gonna be a very important painter. Um, They fell in love. But I think at the time when they met, Krasner was already really significant in the downtown abstract art world. She was the woman who was picked to be put on every committee. She'd been the person who'd been very active in the uh, federal art project. And so when Pollock came in to downtown New York, he had a number of contacts from California and he knew Thomas Hart Benton but he really wasn't um, immersed in the world like Krasner was. And she literally showed him around and introduced him to everyone. And um, there are a couple of really amazing uh, sort of anecdotes that Gabriel has in her book uh, by people who met Pollock and before they'd seen his work were completely unimpressed with him. He was sort of the silent man sitting in dungarees in the corner of Krasner's studio, and they really didn't see what she saw in him. And she brought him single-handedly
0: into that world and sort of set him on his trajectory. Well, and she also, um, you point out, uh, she also single-handedly reset the the market for modern art in what she did after after he died.
4: She um, held on to his estate in a way that I think surprised a lot of people. And then she insisted that the prices be four times as high and everyone thought that uh, she wasn't gonna get it and then the museums, one by one by one, agreed to those prices. And all of a sudden, you had prices that you had paintings that had been selling sort of for five thousand, nine thousand dollars, going for forty thousand, and that had a massive ripple effect on everyone else as well. Because once Pollock was priced that way, well, then why couldn't you price a De Kooning that way?
0: Well, and indeed, um, Elaine, Elaine De Kooning, she she had did similar work in kind of making her husband too.
4: Yes, yeah, she did. Um, and one of the interesting things about this book is. Um, Gabrielle has a kind of naturally beneficial structure because the first half of the book really focuses on Elaine de Kooning and Lee Krasner, who are slightly earlier than the other three. And both of them ended up being in relationships that were very sort of pivotal to the downtown art world. So in one side, you had Jackson Pollock and Lee Krasner, and then you had the other Elaine de Kooning and Bill de Kooning. And Elaine de Kooning was also incredibly influential in pushing Bill de Kooning's career. Elaine was gregarious, uh, uh, beautiful, beautiful, intellectually kind of curious and omnivorous. She was an amazing art critic. Uh, And so she started working for Art News Magazine and began writing pieces that other people perceived as being favorable to de Kooning. So when younger painters came to downtown New York, there was this sense that you could either be part of the Pollock camp or part of the de Kooning camp, um, that there were these kind of two poles in the art world. I've talked to some people who would say, oh, that that, that was not too much of a big deal, you know, Don't read too much into the kind of acrimony or potential antagonism between those two. And then other people really do emphasize it. I think it's probably the former than the latter. But it was quite clear that Elaine de Kooning did have a very, very clear voice and clearly pushed de Kooning's work, Bill de Kooning's work.
2: Jenny, I just wanted to uh, ask a question about Lee Krasner, that she was so, um, she she obviously, as you say, she was already an important figure in the art world, both for what she organised and for her knowledge, but also for her own work. Um, and and a lot of that was subjugated while Jackson Pollock was alive that was almost a conscious decision wasn't it or rather it was a conscious decision on her part to say I've got to push him because he's amazing and it it wasn't a sort of self-effacing I'm just a little old woman not that at all but she she genuinely thought that he needed to be known
4: Yes she genuinely thought that I think also she was just really good at doing it and she could see she was really good at doing it Mm.
2: Um,
4: and I think part of her uh, sense of achievement with organizing in the um, WPA and in the Artists Union was fulfilled by organizing Pollock. Um, I think she, she, she knew she had a talent in, for administration and for the kind of bureaucracy of the art world and for that kind of uh, work within it. And then she just turned it into, into Pollock's direction. Um, she also found that she got incredibly dismissive comments um, from a number of people who are really critical to advancing your career in the art world. I mean, Clement Greenberg,
2: mm.
4: which Gabrielle patiently charts, was particularly nasty to, to Krasner at, at various moments. And I think, you know, I'm, I, I may be reading into it, but my sense was Krasner was going to paint, But she didn't have to paint um, visibly inside of other people if they were going to be that way towards her. And so she kept on going quietly and just didn't bother showing people what she was doing for some time because it just didn't seem like it was a path that was opening up for her at that point.
0: Does the book end up being much more about these women's lives and relationships than it it does about their art? Is there much writing about the art itself? Does... I suppose abstract art especially, is, is quite a, writing about it is quite a difficult thing to do well. Does Gabriel pull that off? I mean, having talked to editors, I, I, know, I know some of the issues that she may have faced.
4: I think she does chart the art, but the, my guess is that the actual descriptions of art and analysis makes up about 10 to 15% of the book, which is a shame um, because I do think we want to see a lot of the art to understand what these women were trying to do but I also understand why it happened. Gabrielle is trying to chart a massive terrain and there's just so much storytelling she has to get in about these women's lives that isn't generally well known. So I think probably there came a point where she wanted to put more art in, and she just couldn't fit it in. It's already 900 pages, mm. and it's not as if what she's writing is irrelevant or uninteresting. And um, you know, there's there's a lot about the storytelling that she's doing that's still important to hear about. You know, she's trying to do a lot in this one book. You can imagine other people coming along and doing um, work with the art itself. Now that she's laid this groundwork for the sort of biographical understanding of these women.
0: Well, and. In fact, she uh, the aim she sets herself is, is to tell the story of, of a cultural revolution.
4: And I think it's a little hard to tell what cultural revolution she's talking about at times because she's spoiled for choice. I mean, she's, she's focusing in the period 1929 to 1959 in New York. So she's got her pick of the letter. She's focusing on women's liberation and the rise of American art as an international phenomenon. And I'd say looking overall at the book, She's looking at the relationship between those two cultural revolutions in particular, and she's charting how the second subverted the first, which is to say how the growing myth, of abstract expressionism um, blocked these women's careers or occluded these women's careers, even as they made great strides as working female painters in the same decades. So she doesn't say this directly, but it's, it's clear over the course of the book that these women's careers, proceeded in part because of the Gaines women's liberation, but at the same time, they were also undermined by the growing art movement that was happening in the the same time. Um, She doesn't say that directly, and maybe because it's not a straightforward revolution, and it's not necessarily a happy story, um, it contains some significant devolution, but that would be my take on what overall she's trying to do. I think it's hard to tell the story of a cultural revolution through five biographies. You know, Marsha Gesson's The Futurist History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia, uses the same structural conceit to better Mm -hmm. effect. But I think that's because she was profiling people who are thinkers and theorizers, people who were already using the phrase cultural revolution in their sentences. And I think it's a lot easier to transition from the micro to the macro when the micro already has its eye on the macro. And with the exception of de Kooning, who worked as an art critic, like I said, none of these women were that interested in making broad sweeping statements of cultural relevance Then they would have hated to stand in for anything other than
0: themselves. Is that the same for? I mean, the book falls into two main parts. There are two generations of abstract expressionists, as, as I think you mentioned before. Um, did they both kind of feel the same in that respect? What are the significant differences? were there Was there an improvement in you know in the women's lot, so to speak? Did they overlap much? Did they, you know, did they kind of, did they deal with each other very much, these women from different generations? Obviously, they would have been in the same circles, but they, did they, I don't know, did they kind of look out for each other or or help each other out?
4: Uh, Well, okay, so they overlapped very closely. Um, The first generation had been working through the 30s and 40s, basically in isolation and penury. No one had been paying attention to them and then attention started picking up in the late 40s. And that was precisely the time when a lot of these younger artists arrived in New York. So you have this very tight overlap between the first generation who've been doing things for a long time and the second generation who are turning up, noticing what they're doing and trying to kind of absorb those lessons in their own work. So for the Ninth Street Show, which is the name of the book and the kind of um, the, the way that uh, Gabriel begins it, that was an exhibition organized by the artists. So it wasn't generated by curators or by a museum, and it was almost a salon de fusée where 72 artists who'd been working downtown uh, agreed to rent out a uh, vacant store, and for two or three weeks, their work was shown. And all five of these women were exhibited in this show And they were already well-known enough to come in to submit a a piece of work and to have it accepted. But Krasner and um, Elaine de Kooning by that time had been doing this for a long time. And Frankenthaler, I think, was in her early 20s. So they were aware of each other in the sense that they saw each other's work. They moved in the same circles. They went drinking together. They holidayed together. Um, But I, Gabrielle had a hard time finding clear evidence of them actually helping each other because they were women. Um, uh, I don't think there was a lot of camaraderie because of their gender. In fact, if anything, there may have been a little bit of um, antagonism sometimes because they were used, some of them were used to being the only woman in the room Mm -hmm. and uh, then someone else would come along. So Grace Hartigan said that about uh, Joan Mitchell that she she was used to being, you know, the person there, and then Joan Mitchell came in. So I think there was a little bit of prickliness. There were some individual friendships between them. I think Frankenthaler was. Um, got along well with Elaine crooning but I think overall there was not a sense of, okay, you know, girls we're in it together, let's um let's band up against the boys. I don't think that was happening at all.
2: No, and I don't suppose Clement Greenberg helped with that whole <laughs> uh, with that whole feeling anyway. Can we it's a wonderful I mean there's so much to talk about in it, but can we just ask you this is a rather big question. I'm sorry to ask you it as a final one. Is this is it an important book? Is it saying something that hasn't is it sort of articulated something that hasn't been articulated before do you think or is it just a kind of oh how interesting we, we know about these women and we're, I'm considering them together for once
4: well I think it is an important book I hope it will be given to students in particular Gabrielle did an enormous amount of research and the book stages a number of problems that any art historian or cultural critic has to deal with um, for example how much to focus on the art or how much weight to put on uh, an artist's personal life and particularly a woman's sexual relationships, which gets a lot of focus in this book. And I think you could, you know, you could be worried by how much um, emphasis is placed on sexual relationships when you're accounting for a woman's career. I think Gabrielle's, has it synthesized a huge amount of research. And even if I'm wary of that impulse in general, I do have a great deal of respect for that kind of ambition And I think personally for me, it really did change um, how I was seeing the world a little bit. And the weeks after I went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and I was going to a, um, a temporary exhibition and walked through their kind of abstract expressionism rooms, and almost immediately I noticed when a room was just overwhelmingly male, when there were five Rothko's on the wall, five Jackson Pollock's on the wall, and just one Joan Mitchell, or one Lee Krasner, and how overwhelmingly those rooms were weighted in the men's favor. And I don't think I would have noticed that so quickly and so instinctively had I not read Gabriel's book. And so I do think it's important in that sense. And, you know, Gabriel, She doesn't really editorialize about the systemic misogyny in the book. She reports on it. She describes, for example, Clement Greenberg's particularly reprehensible comments, but she doesn't allow herself to get really angry, which I think is wonderful because it gives the reader permission to find it even more maddening. Um, There were many times where I started growling in frustration (laughs) as I was reading the book um, because there were just so many key women who played roles in abstract expressionism expressionism that just weren't given credit. Um, like Just one example, which I loved that Gabrielle focused on, is Dorothy Miller. Dorothy Miller was a woman hired by Alfred H. Barr at the Museum of Modern Art as an assistant curator, and he very quickly promoted her to being the curator of collections. She was there from, from the moment that he started paying attention to abstract expressionism. But in none of the stories you hear about Barr going to buy these people's art and putting it in the museum. I mean, there's a, there's a sort of a very important story about Barr going and buying Hartigan's painting and literally carrying it off the gallery walls from the Thibaut de Nagy Gallery and taking it to the Museum of Modern Art. And none of those stories, Miller is there. Yeah, She's kind of whitewashed out of history And that's despite the fact that Miller was responsible for curating a number of really significant shows at MoMA. They were called the New Americans shows. And I think she did nine shows where she gathered together a small group of contemporary American artists and that she was responsible for setting the taste of abstract expressionism at MoMA with those shows.
0: Well, so, I mean it's it's clear, I think I think it's very clear, Jenny, that there there is more to be done. I think we'll end on a on a note of hope rather than anger. Growling. <laughs> <laughs> um thank you so much. That was all fascinating. Um thanks so much for joining us. No worries. I mean, insofar as we can sum that up, in many ways, it seems to be a book about labels, doesn't it, and how they both help and hinder.
2: Yes, and it's I do I think it's interesting the way that they were doing their own work, which is extremely important to them. And they didn't, you know, like you were asking about the solidarity between them. Mm. Presumably they didn't feel that they had to do that. No. Because, you know, I mean, we kind of think now that we've got to band together, and, but, but um, they, were, they were going their own way. And also that's what I meant about Jackson Pollock. She was promoting his work. The work was what was important. Yeah. It didn't matter to them who was painting it. Yeah. But as it turned out, in terms that. of context, yeah. all of their work was basically... Passed over, and what was promoted was their de Kooning, yeah, Pollock, yeah. Rothko, uh, all of those guys. And in the 1959 show, I think she said there weren't there weren't any women. Yeah. I think is that right? That they were th- just not even the new generation.
0: That's where the book ends, isn't it? Um, yes. The whole thing sort of reminded me of of the New York intellectuals, and you know Elizabeth Hardwick and and all of that set, and and. And Elizabeth Hardwick famously putting everything behind her, her husband Robert Lowell and his reputation, and Diana Trilling did the same. They were all in the same kind of friendship group, mm. um, and they put everything behind that. But they judged each other so fiercely. I would say more fiercely than they judged uh, the, the the male writers. Say, and you know Diana Trilling came in for a special criticism uh, for taking her husband's her, her husband's surname. Uh, for right. some reason it's, it was, it's just treacherous terrain I think
2: well what I mean I don't know but you sort of think what? Well, you we shouldn't have to band together I mean it's nice to band together it's nice <laughs> and it's helpful but equally if you want to just do your own thing you ought to be able to because it, it all ought to be promoted on the merits of the work alas <laughs> history tells us otherwise
0: <laughs> That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks to Jenny Quilter and Laura Tunbridge. Uh, Please do pick up a copy of the TLS this week beyond the pieces we've just discussed. There's a review of Jim Jarmusch's new film, The Dead Don't Die, which stars Iggy Pop. Paul Kings North gives an account of a move to rural Ireland which turns out not to be the idyll he expected as well as a look at the various homes of Virginia Woolf and her disparagement of her poor husband Leonard's greenhouses next week we'll have Annie Erno Yukio Mishima in the form of an exclusive extract from the first ever translation into English by Stephen Dodds of his novel Life for Sale there's also the story of the most formidable spy in history and an account of how imperialism thrived in the modern cigarette intrigued well I hope so. Uh, Until then, from Lucy and from me, goodbye.